Our brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Gospel success at Thess- Thessalonica. I'll be reading uh, from the last verses of chapter 16. They're starting at uh, verse 35 of chapter 16 and reading through to verse 9 of chapter 17. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So Paul and his team have completed their ministry at Philippi, and they travel to Thessalonica. We'll look at that travel. We'll learn about these towns in this region of the Roman Empire a little bit. And then we'll see that he spent three Sabbaths there reasoning with the Jews from the Scriptures. We'll ponder that together. And we'll see the essentials of the gospel again from Paul's lips, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And we'll, of course, look closely at the sweetness of the gospel once again. We'll see the working of the Holy Spirit bringing faith as some of the Jews were persuaded in spite of all that was working against faith within the Jews at that time. We'll see, in contrast, a multitude of the devout Greeks who do join Paul and Silas along with some of the leading women of that region and, of course, By God's grace, we will, by his spirit, have these truths applied to our own hearts and minds and lives 
for us to go forth from here more like Christ, walking in his ways more fully. First Thessalonians 2 verse 2, Paul wrote these words. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So there's persecution there that Paul is referencing and the threats that have been brought against him and his team. And it does call to mind, doesn't it, the importance of Paul's calling Reference this before, the power of that calling, the importance of that calling in him pressing forward, specifically for Paul, evangelism and church planting, but certainly the importance and the power of the calling upon your life and God today not only applies to evangelism and discipleship that you are called to carry out and the preaching of Christ that you are called to carry out in your life, but certainly even wider applications of calling in your life today. You'll see there in your sermon notes that they're now traveling. They've gone around the northern part there of the Aegean Sea, and they're making their way from northwest to southeast along the coast there in this area that's known as Macedonia at that time. The text says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So now as the crow flies, it's about 33 miles to Amphipolis, and 27 miles to Apollonia. But the Via Ignatia, uh, another Roman road, the distance is approximately 102 miles. The sources I read had slightly differing numbers. So it's longer on the road because it has to kind of curve around the coastline and there's some rivers and mountains that it has to navigate there. So you can think about this uh, travel that they went through from Thessalonica, excuse me, from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, Amphipolis was a fairly famous town of that region. The commentary says it was capital of one of the four sub-districts. It was the first district. It was a capital, the capital in Macedonia. And the Strymon River surrounded it on three sides. So it was a bit of a scenic town. Much of the Macedonian leadership of Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great came from this area. (coughs) Amphipolis also was a major city under Caesar Augustus. It was 33 miles south-southwest of Philippi, and Apollonia was 27 miles west-southwest of Amphipolis. And this, again, is all along the Via Ignatia. Commentary also says Paul and his missionary associates, Silas and Timothy, travel from Philippi along the Via Ignatia, via Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica, a journey of about 102 miles. Amphipolis, 60 kilometers from Philippi, could be reached in two days travel. And again, that's assuming that you're healthy enough to walk fast or you've got a good horse. Um, we have to remember they'd been beaten, right? They had had their wounds taken care of. They'd been beaten with rods all about their body. Unnumbered, unnumbered strikes they received. They had open wounds that the Philippian jailer attended for them. And they left out that next day after that beating. So they were still in pain. They were still bleeding in places, very likely. So there's no mention of any synagogue or missionary activity for these two cities. They just passed through them. It certainly appears, doesn't it, that Paul was aiming for the synagogue at Thessalonica. You see his focus. 
his awareness of the means that God had given to him. Not only was he aware of his general calling of church planting, evangelistic work amongst the Gentiles, but he took to heart God's process for doing it. He had submitted himself himself to God's means. Commentary says he found a synagogue of the Jews there, which intimates that one reason why he passed through those other cities mentioned and did not continue long in them was because there were no synagogues in them. So, you know, it's a question for us. Do we feel like we're free to change the means as long as we're aiming for the proper goal that God has given to us? Or are we bound in obedience and faith to walk not only towards God's destination, but along the path that is using the means that he has called us to? See, we're so tempted, aren't we, to work by the arm of the flesh and use pragmatism. In addition, we could likely say that um, perhaps Paul was looking to put some extra miles between his team and Philippi at this point in time. He had wisdom there in extending the miles from those who held those evil rods, even though, of course, as we discussed, Paul remembered the ultimate rod bearer of God being Christ himself and that all of God's enemies placed themselves in jeopardy of coming under God's rod bearer. I also want us to see the providence of God's plan for history. We've discussed this before. It's worth remembering this wonderful Roman infrastructure. You know, these Roman roads are amazing feats of engineering. These roads are still uh, observable today with their multiple layers and their uh, wondrous attention to maintenance of these roads throughout the years that they were in place. So these roads, the Via Ignatia, is in place at that point in time. God's messenger. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Walking along this road, we see the providence of God to provide that means of transport for the messenger of Christ. Again, I hope that you will recall that they had been beaten severely and now they travel over the road. They don't stop, apparently, at the first city or the second city. Certainly you could see the way that they could easily justify in their minds taking their time. Oh, we need a rest. Let's let these wounds heal up. I'm, I'm limping. But they were devoted to their calling and they embraced the importance of using time wisely and they were well enough by God's grace to travel and they did. Were they walking? Did they have horses? Maybe the Lord provided a chariot of some sort for them. We don't know, do we? But in either case, I hope that you will note their devotion to Christ uh, in spite of the beatings that they experienced and in spite of their knowledge, certainly, that the word about their travels had gone forth to other cities. They continued forward along the path. Apollonia was also a well-known city. It was primarily a travel stop along this road. After leaving Amphipolis, the Via Ignatia ran along the Aegean Sea before moving straight west to Apollonia. This is located south of Lake Bulby. So it was a scenic path that they were able to travel. God blesses us in the midst of our afflictions, does he not? Commentary also says the Via Ignatia was very narrow in parts, allowing only a single person to walk through at certain locations. So it was a bit tight. Still, it remained a major trade and travel route. And Apollonia often became a stopping point along the way for travelers. It was common to see legions of Roman soldiers traveling along this road. And at its peak, the historians 
uh, estimate that Apollonia was a city of around 10,000 people. I even saw one estimate up to 100,000. It was a mixture of Jewish, Greek, and Roman inhabitants. So you get a sense of the eclectic nature of their travels and the likelihood that they would have bumped into other travelers along this road. They arrive at Thessalonica. What do we know about Thessalonica from that time? Well, it was a major city. So perhaps that's another reason Paul came from Philippi, a known leading city, to Thessalonica, the major city in that region. Commentary tells us Thessalonica was the capital city of the second district of Macedonia and also served as capital of the whole region and home of the proconsul from 148 BC. It's been called the metropolis of Macedonia. The city was located a little more than 70 miles southwest of Philippi. But the journey was longer because the route wove around the rugged Greek coast, which went from shore to hills almost immediately. It was a three-day trip if they had horses, but would take a few days longer if they traveled on foot. Thessalonica was a vital link to the Balkans with routes by land and sea. As a free city, it had the right to self-government on a Greek model. The poet Antipater of Thessalonica called it the mother of all Macedonia. It had a major harbor and was a key link to the Bosporus and the Black Sea. So it was a very important city of that time. Its population has been estimated between 20 and 100,000. As a senatorial province, it was very local to Rome, loyal to Rome, a point that will be important in the events that we will see. As Luke notes in verse 6, provincial governors ran the city. Its location on the coast made it ideal for commerce. So think of an important city in an important region on the coast serving as a very influential political hub for that region and eclectic, filled with Greeks and Romans and Gentiles of many sorts and a Jewish synagogue. So the regional prominence of Thessalonica is perhaps another reason that Paul traveled straight there from Philippi. So think about how he would have felt when he got there, right? Uh, Maybe he wanted to take a break. He wasn't quite ready to go at it with the Jews again. There's no evidence of that. It just goes straight into the next text. It says where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So again, we see his focus and his targeted efforts to move from place to place for the purpose of his calling. He spent three Sabbaths reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures, we're told. We're told that this was his custom. He goes into the synagogue of the Jews. May it be our custom, brothers and sisters, to obey God's defined means for going forth with the gospel in our lives, uh, resisting pragmatic efforts to use the arm of the flesh to promote the gospel when, uh, sadly, in actuality, we end up undermining the gospel. Certainly, it would have seemed easier, would it not, to go quietly and directly to the Gentiles to avoid some persecution. He's learned, hasn't he, how he's going to be treated by the Jews. Certainly anyone with any common sense and pragmatic value to getting things done and accomplishing the mission would have advised Paul and Silas and and Timothy and the crew, hey, forget about the Jews. Go to the Gentiles. Look Look at all the fruit you have with the Gentiles. Well, I certainly fear that many of our efforts are based on the same kind of pragmatic thinking. May God deliver us from it. Because Paul's remembering what he was told. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Yes, and amen, everyone for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He had his marching orders, not only where he was to go and what he was to do, but how he was to do it. Romans 2.9, it's repeated by Paul to the church at Rome, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God has his means for accomplishing his goals. May we submit ourselves to them gladly and pour dust and ashes on our head for questioning his means. Commentary says it was always his manner to begin with the Jews, to make them the first offer of the gospel and not to turn to the Gentiles till they had refused it, that their mouths might be stopped from clamoring against him because he preached to the Gentiles. For if they received the gospel, they would cheerfully embrace the new converts. If they refused it, they might thank themselves if the apostles carried it to those that would bid it welcome. That command of beginning at Jerusalem was justly construed as a direction wherever they came to begin with the Jews. We see here at Thessalonica, the Lord in his great providence had placed a synagogue there. And it is worth pondering the meaning of this. In Acts 15, 21, we were told already in this comment from the Jerusalem council justifying their actions For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, we need to consider the extensive pre-marination of the Roman Empire in the teaching of God's word. Note this phrase, every city. It wasn't just cities with synagogues. It was every city. The Lord by this time, had providentially prepared pagan towns everywhere in the Roman Empire to receive the gospel. Throughout many generations, we're told, God's providence is like the the waxing and waning of the eons, and we barely notice the tide. But he is the one who brings the waves to their height, and we barely notice. It occurs throughout many generations by having The Old Testament read in the synagogues every Sabbath. But also, we are told, the Old Testament was preached in every city. Next, we're told that he reasoned with them from the scriptures for three Sabbaths. We have so much to learn from this. May this encourage our souls. First of all, regarding Sabbaths, brothers and sisters, be a Sabbath keeper. Be a Sabbath keeper. Keeper, Sabbath keepers are blessed. And we see that in today's text. Commentary says he met them in their synagogues on the Sabbath day in their place and at their time of meeting. And thus he would pay respect to both Sabbaths and solemn assemblies are always very precious to those to whom Christ is precious. Psalm 8410. It is good being in the house of the Lord on his day. This was Christ's manner. This was Paul's manner, and it has been the manner of all true saints, the good old way which they have walked in. And these Jews, even though only some of them were persuaded, those who were persuaded were blessed, were they not, brothers and sisters, to be there on that Sabbath day. Will you be so blessed today as well to receive Christ anew, afresh, perhaps even for the first time today, because you are blessed to be amongst the assembly of the saints on the Lord's day.
Next, we see God, uh, Paul's patience and his perseverance that he was there with them on three Sabbaths. Please note his persistence and his patience and his exchanges with the Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath. This people that had proven themselves to be stubborn and dangerous to him and to the gospel, that same path he had walked before he was converted. But yet we see as long as they would have him, he would preach Christ. Is that you? As long as someone will have you, will you preach Christ? Commentary says, if he could not convince them the first Sabbath, he would try the second and the third. For precept must be upon precept and line upon line. God waits for sinners' conversion. And so must his ministers. All the laborers come not into the vineyard at the first hour, nor at the first call, nor are wrought upon so suddenly as was the Philippian jailer. God works in his timing and in his ways in each person's heart. May we just be content to preach Christ day by day with our lives and with our words. Now, we are called by God, are we not, to love him with all of our mind? And we certainly see that on display here, do we not? This idea of reasoned means to think different things within oneself to mingle thought with thought, to ponder, to revolve in your mind, to converse and discourse with one, to argue, to discuss. This is that fruitful exchange of ideas that we are called to have with one another. And it is a stepwise, time-requiring process where we exchange ideas while I have no Opposition to the four spiritual laws are being prepared for your elevator delivery of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that is not sufficient. Do you know God's word enough on any topic to reason from the scripture for three successive Sundays on a topic? This is a stepwise exchange of ideas. And this reasoned discourse, this reasoned exchange is constrained for us, according to God's infinite wisdom, by at least these two things. The laws of logic and civility. The laws of logic and civility. Proof requires you to submit your mind to it when that proof comes to you from the word of God. No other proof or source should ever outweigh in your mind a proof that comes to you from the word of God. Certainly we will note often that in our own lives, we did not submit ourselves to the pure and powerful logic of God's word. We held on to ideas. We deceived ourselves because it would not have been convenient to change our views. May we be like these few Jews who were persuaded as we also, by God's grace, engage with Christ himself as he brings his word into our lives. And he reasons with us patiently throughout all the Sabbaths of our lives. Paul, being a wise, converted Christian man who understands the power of God and its source, did not reason with these Jews first from creation or first from...
from observations of the world like today's classical apologist would be tempted to do. Paul demonstrates to us the beginning of wisdom is the submission to every jot and tittle of God's word from Genesis to Revelation is the only infallible and pure source of truth upon this earth. Preserved for us by God through the ages according to his goodness and his kindness to us. What is a presupposition? Do you know what a presupposition is? It is a maxim, listen now, that must be held by faith. It cannot be proven as true via typical evidence-based logic. I cannot prove to you that the scriptures are the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, every jot and tittle holding ultimate authority and power in any other way than to tell you that the scripture says so. Now, why the scriptures are always shown to be accurate and true through everything we discover in life, none of those things, nigh the church itself has no authority to make that declaration and determine it as true. Yet the word of God alone is the authority. So is this your way of thinking? Do you love the Lord your God with your mind like Paul did? Reasoning from the scriptures and not holding out any other source, not granting any other source, authority, ultimate authority. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are held by the faithful to be the infallible word of God because of scriptural testimony on this question and for no other reason. And this is not circular reason. It, in fact, to the contrary, is the only foundation for all of sanity. If you call sanity living in reality and having fabricated falsehoods, fantasy worlds removed from your thinking, which is ultimately the definition of insanity. Commentary says, note the preaching of the gospel should be both scriptural preaching and rational. Such Paul's was for he reasoned out of the scriptures. We must take the scriptures for our foundation our oracle and touchstone and then reason out of them and upon them and against those who, though they pretend zeal for the scriptures as the Jews did, yet rest them to their own destruction. Reason must not be set up in competition with the scripture, but it must be made use of in explaining and applying the scripture. May it be that you would have your Bible in hand in frequent conversations throughout the remainder of your life and opening it and reasoning from it, from topic to topic and question to question as you preach Christ and his cross and his glory throughout the days of your life. What topics can you explore with others via reasoning from the scriptures? Can you reason from the scriptures regarding Christ as the Messiah using the Old Testament Certainly it's well and good to use the New Testament and you should, but you see Paul used the Old Testament and he demonstrated from the Old Testament scripture that the Messiah, foretold Messiah, must by necessity die and suffer upon that cross and by necessity be raised from the dead. Can you do this? Certainly we enjoyed, I know many of you are considering our Christian instruction hour where we sought to make this our goal. That is a good model Make it your goal for every topic in life. 
Is this reasoning from the scriptures, brothers and sisters, is this your mind's habit and your lifestyle? Or do you, looking at your own way of thinking and communicating, find yourself sadly comfortable with just throwing out opinions and speculation based on some sort of authority within yourself? Or some other authority that you point to? Oh, may it be true of us and all of God's people that this would be the habit of our lives. So what did Paul preach? He preached that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and that there is only one man now and forever who has met those criteria. There shall be no other. Those who wait for him wait in vain. Those who deny him do so to their own soul's jeopardy. The text says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, notice the simplicity of the gospel message. This idea explaining means opening. And it's the same word that was used in Luke 24 when Christ opened the understanding of his apostles to see these very truths. Commentary says to open by dividing or drawing asunder, to open thoroughly that which had been closed. It is used of a male opening up the womb as, it, as being the firstborn or of the healing that Jesus did when he would open eyes or open ears. And it's certainly to open the mind of one to cause the mind to be open to understand the thing. But what's happening here is that the scriptures are being opened And the King James Version just says simply about this word, opened to them, the scriptures. So you see, the the scriptures must be opened by God and our minds must be opened to receive that which comes forth to us from the word. But not only did he open to them these great truths that the Messiah must die and be raised from the dead, but he demonstrated to them alleging, is the, the King James Version, which means to take this which, which had been unfolded and to place beside or near or set before like food being placed on a table. May God bless me to do this for you Sunday after Sunday. May you be blessed to do this, parents, within your home. And may you, in your time alone in God's word, be blessed to do this to yourself as you bring forth God's word for your mind's consideration. Do we not see here the diligence needed of evangelism and discipleship and of living out our calling that we must know the word of God and that we must give forth the time necessary to carry out these things? It's prioritization that we see in his life. So we learn more of Paul's method of preaching the gospel. Brothers and sisters, note first that he always started from the scripture Most especially when he was dealing with the Jews, we'll see some slightly different methods that he used when dealing with Gentiles. But it always goes back to the word. He maintained a process with these people of exchange, restrained restrained by civility and by logic. So what did he do? He opened up the scriptures before their minds. And they would go back and forth with these ideas and it would be open to them like a newborn baby coming to the arms of its mother 
or as a sound comes for the first time to deaf ears or as sight comes to blind eyes. And there, having brought forth the truth of God's word to them, he lays it gently before their minds consideration, entrusting it to the Holy Spirit of God to develop an appetite in them for his truth. As a sage chef might bring savory fare before the senses of the hungry. You see, the preacher cannot create this spiritual vitality. The preacher cannot create this spiritual hunger for the truth. And as we will see, this very same teaching will be seen as filth to be rejected by those upon whom the Spirit has not worked. And it is true for all of us. None of us will ever be awakened to eat, if you will, of the savory truth of God's word unto eternal life. Apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And while the Holy Spirit is not mentioned by name here in this text, we see the risen and ascended and reigning Christ working from heaven by his spirit to accompany the preaching of the word of God here. May it be true for us as well. Today, may it be true of you in your life as you go forth. That God would anoint the word coming forth from your mouth and from your life. May you be like Paul. May we be like Paul. Humble servants, civil, restrained, diligent, patient, even going into places where there's great risk. There are three critical components of the gospel given to us. Again and again, we see the apostles returning to the gospel essentials that Christ had laid before them immediately prior to his ascension. This is the pattern of the preaching of the word of the gospel from then, now, and forever. Jesus said immediately prior to his ascension in Luke 24, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He had told them these things about himself while before his death. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. They did not understand that Jesus must die. They didn't understand it while he laid inside the tomb. They didn't understand it even after he came forth from the grave. They didn't understand it until he opened their mind. They didn't even understand it when they saw his risen body. Going on, then Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. There it is. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. This takes us back to the very beginning, does it not, of the study of the book of Acts and the work of the Spirit. And we see here that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in His name, not just some academic Messiah an idea that must die and be raised from the dead, but a singular man. And repentance and remission of sins cannot occur apart from believing in Jesus Christ himself and trusting in his death and his resurrection and calling upon God the Father in his name for forgiveness. It's not just a set of good ideas. So first, the Messiah had to suffer and die. They had to learn that the Messiah is not just a great man like David 
who will rule over Israel and deliver them from their enemies and, and take them out from the political tyranny of Rome. No, the Messiah is a humble man who first suffered and died. And this death was necessary for their deliverance and for his exaltation unto victory and for the defeat of his enemies. Commentary says the great objection which the Jews made against Jesus being the Messiah was his ignominious death and sufferings. The cross of Christ was to the Jews a stumbling block, we are told, because it did by no means agree with the idea they had framed in their own minds their false idea of Jesus. But Paul here alleges and makes it out undeniably, not only that it was possible he, he Jesus, might be the Messiah, though he suffered, but that being the Messiah, it was necessary that he should suffer. It was a necessary, essential mark of being the Messiah, is that he had to suffer and die. He could not be made perfect, but by his sufferings, we are told. For if he had not died, he could not have risen again from the dead. And this was what Christ insisted upon himself in Luke 24, verse 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into glory? And again, thus it is written, and therefore thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. He must needs have suffered for us because he could not otherwise purchase redemption for us. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, pointing to his death, his atoning death upon the cross, is a forever essential piece of preaching the gospel and of what you must believe in order to be saved. Next, this same man who died upon this cross, this Messiah had to rise again from the dead. It was foretold of him. And in order for him to fulfill the criteria of being the Messiah, this must be true of him. He's not just a great man like David who would rule over Israel and deliver their enemies. The Messiah was the firstborn from the dead, the first fruit of those who would save. He would usher in the new age through his resurrection. And his resurrection shows forth the perfection of his atoning death, accepted by his father, vindicated through his resurrection. He had to suffer and die and he had to rise from the dead to be the Messiah. Now, there are certainly numerous things we can discuss in terms of the benefits of the cross and of the resurrection to us, his people. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, righteousness that is ours, the ever present work of the spirit to grant to us the certainty that we are forgiven once and for all. And there's no, another, no, no need for any further bloodshed. Christ need not shed his blood again. Furthermore, his blood need not be presented before the throne ever again. And such that teach these things deny the full sufficiency of his cross. And we see finally here that we must also preach, as Paul did, that this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and none other is the Messiah. Salvation does not come to those who believe in an academic Messiah who died and rose from the dead, but rather only to those who believe that Jesus of Nazareth by name is the only foretold Messiah of Israel and of all the world. He alone, none other, now and forever. 
And he sits at God's right hand as the ultimate evidence of this reality. Commentary says that Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus whom I preach unto you and call upon you to believe in is Christ, is the Christ, is the anointed of the Lord, is he that should come and you are to look for no other. For God is both his word and by his works, the two ways of his speaking to the children of men, by the scriptures and by miracles and the gift of the spirit to make both effectual. These have both borne witness to Jesus. Note here, one, gospel ministers should preach Jesus. He must be their principal subject. Their business is to bring people acquainted with him. As we preach the gospel, brothers and sisters, please don't let it be a set of of ideas that you present to people. You present to them a person, a singular person, one who stands as utterly unique. You must bring them to Jesus. Two, that which we are to preach concerning Jesus is that he is Christ. And therefore, we may hope to be saved by him and are bound to be ruled by him. Saved by him in his cross, ruled by him in his resurrection and his ascension. This is such glorious good news. There can be none other. Once this truth dawns on your mind and is brought into your heart and you are granted to taste of this goodness, have you ever found anything that could ever compare to this wondrous truth that we have been brought to God in Christ? Paul says to them, whom I preach to you, he references the idea of preaching We must submit to God's means. We must open our mouths, brothers and sisters, and preach Christ to ourselves and to those around us. God uses preaching to bring his salvation. Does he need us? Certainly not. Yet, in his infinite wisdom, he uses the preaching of Jesus Christ from sinful, hell-deserving lips that as this glorious truth leaves such lips, he's demonstrating his grace such as us are even allowed to speak his holy name. He uses the preaching of Jesus Christ, the weak as it is through weak vessels like us. Blessing us to be a part of bringing his salvation to his elect and blessing us to be a part of him defeating his enemies. May we be focused upon him and his gospel. Do you preach Christ? Do you believe in Jesus as the Christ? Have you trusted in his death on the cross alone for your forgiveness, for your righteousness? Have you believed in his resurrection from the dead as your only hope of power and godliness and eternal life? Have you trusted in the risen, reigning Ascended Jesus Christ, who will come again to this earth. And in him alone. May we fix our eyes on Jesus today and every day. So what is the fruit that God grants here in this situation? You know, this doesn't always happen. Uh, This was an age of mighty work of the Holy Spirit. We must admit, must we not, that today does not appear to be such a day. 
you would probably admit in your own life that you've not seen this same kind of success when you preach Christ. I certainly have not. Who is to know why? God knows. There's many reasons that I think we could understand. But ultimately what we see here is the invincible choice of God to do so. And that he reigns in the midst of his enemies. First we're told some of them were persuaded. So only some of the Jews were persuaded and contrast them this to what happens later. There's many. And they joined themselves to Paul and Silas. And this is worth noticing. It is another fruit of belief. Commentary says, note those that believe in Jesus Christ come into communion with his faithful ministers and associate with them. And I'll go back to the prior point about the Sabbath, the key place where all of these people come together and associate together with one another without fail as the top priority in the schedule of their lives is to be present with the people of God on his day to worship him. But not only there, certainly we associate with one another in many, many other ways as well as we serve him and as we encourage and as we carry out hospitality in our homes and all the other things and eat wonderful pasta di fioli together. This is what we do as his people. I'm sure I said it wrong. Um, it was a wonderful pasta dish um, the Grand Mandy made. Believers in Christ associate with the people of Christ as uh, the number one priority in our lives in terms of the people and the places that we choose to be. Next, we see a comparative statement here. There's a great multitude of devout Greeks joined with Paul and Silas as well. They believe also. Text says, a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now, this word great multitude, isn't it wonderful? Like Luke apparently couldn't keep count. Like you couldn't keep count of all the blows that Paul and Silas received from the Romans. Well, similarly, you couldn't keep count of all of the people that came to trust in Christ. Was it hundreds? Was it thousands? We know this was a very large city between 20 and 100,000 people. Who knows what kind of tumult they're accused later of turning the world upside down. A great multitude of people came to believe in this Jesus of Nazareth as the one who died upon the cross for their sins and trusted in him for salvation and that he had conquered death through his resurrection from the dead and that he was reigning over all things and that every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord and everyone walk in his ways. Oh, this indeed turns the world upside down. This is what God did then. Now, what are these devout Greeks? It's worth noticing another providence here. These are proselytes of the gate, we're told. The godly among the Gentiles is what the Jews called them. Such as though they did not submit to the law of Moses, yet they renounced idolatry and immorality, and they worshiped the true God only and did not man any wrong. These were the worshiping Gentiles. As in America, they call those of the natives that are converted to the faith of Christ, the praying Indians, These were admitted to join with the Jews in their synagogue worship. Of these, a great multitude believed, more of them than of the thorough-paced Jews who were wedded to the ceremonial law. So there apparently was a pretty big move of God already in place to bring these Greeks, these non-Jews, into the, if you will, the courtyard of the Gentiles. 
They had been coming near the synagogue and they had been participating in the worship of the Most High God as devout non-Jew Greeks, believing in the Most High God, not been circumcised. Many perhaps were on their way through the proselyte process. Perhaps many of them were soon to be circumcised. But in any case, there's a lot of them. And they, far more easily than the Jews, see that this Jesus is the one that they've been taught about. It's also worth taking time to consider that not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Leading women. I want us to note Luke's choice to bring forth this reality to us. So many false statements are made about Christianity suppressing women and putting women down. Now, are these Jewish or Gentile women? We don't know. They're leading women. So in some sense, they had cultural influence. Perhaps they were in positions of leadership that might have been allowed in a pagan culture. Perhaps they were married to leaders. Perhaps they were... Uh, Maybe in the same category as as Lydia, but maybe even more advanced than her in terms of being successful merchants. Who knows? But it's worth noting that the Lord uses leading women to advance his gospel. And not a few of these leading women that were in place there at that time, not a few of them, they were converted. And similar to these devout Greeks and to the few Jews, they joined themselves to Paul and Silas. So it's worth considering what influence, again, providentially, the Lord had already granted to these women and to what end it may now be put to use by them in that culture as his saints. Commentary says, and not a few of the chief women of the city that were devout and had a sense of religion embraced Christianity. Particular notice is taken of this for an example to the ladies, the chief women, and an encouragement to them to employ themselves in the exercises of devotion and to submit themselves to the commanding power of Christ's holy religion in all the instances of it. For this intimates how acceptable it will be to God. What an honor to Christ and what great influence it may have upon many besides the advantages of it to their own souls. Each of you can surely be a leading woman within your own home. In the right way. Even children. Little girls. You can learn. To love and express the gospel. Through your life. In a way that. Brings the aroma of grace to your home. Not only within your home. But in your spheres of influence in this world. Do you go forth. First and foremost. As an ambassador. For Christ. Every step of the way should be true, not just for you and I, us men, but also for women as well. So a few thoughts and questions to know and to love and to obey God more deeply. Do you see the importance of calling upon your life? The importance of putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. There are many places where you may have experienced this in your life. One of the most obvious would be in marriage. Till death do us part. Doing God's will 
as husband and as wife, pressing through every adversity, every set of rod beatings we experience within the context of marriage, every sort of threat-filled territory that we dare not tiptoe into. Certainly this is also true for your pastor standing here before you today as well. For every minister who is called of God. The importance and the power of calling. Walking in the power of the Spirit and the certainty of what you have been called to do. He will lead you in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And you will partake of that meal that He sets before you with joy and gladness and victory. In the presence of all of yours and His enemies throughout your life. Do you understand this reality? Next, do you think it's only for Paul or only for ministers or only limited to marriage? Certainly we can call about, we can talk about calling and vocation. In fact, that word vocation has its root meaning in calling. God is the one who for his people calls them into dominion work through their particular contribution to the advancement of the application of the law of God to every sphere of life. And you, you are called to participate in advancing that in some form or fashion with your life. God will show you. Oh, do not be left. Oh, please. Do not think that we as Christians live in purely a mundane world where what you do is just to put money into your bank. That what you do is just to pay for the food and the clothing and the shelter and the security of your people. What a beggarly life that is. You work for the King of Kings and there's a glow about everything you do for him when it is for his kingdom and for his purposes. So do you understand the importance and the power of calling and has God brought this upon your own life? And it comes in every phase and stage of life. Little ones, there is a calling upon your life. Caleb, who will you be inside the Clark home? Luke, who will you be inside the Clark home? Maddox, children are ducking. Andrew, who will you be inside the Maddox home? What is your calling within your home. Seek the Lord and he will give you the strength and the power you need. Next, you will not persevere. You will not have diligence. You will not have patience. You will not have hope. You will not have joy. You will not pray rightly apart from walking in this calling. But within this calling, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness as it pertains to your life, therein and therein alone will you find that your Father in heaven is delighted to give the kingdom to you, little flock. And everything you touch, like Midas, will turn to gold for him. Gold that you cannot see, but that God sees And in this, we will learn to know our Bibles. Do you know your Bible? 
In this calling, we will learn, learn to persevere in patience in ministering to those whom God has brought within our sphere of influence. We will be diligent to pursue others, to keep our eyes open for others that he may bring into the sound of our voice to whom we could preach Christ and him crucified and resurrected the one and only Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in this, you will find joy in your prayers. Your prayers will be made new as you walk in the certainty of this calling in your life of who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing with you before you die. And there will be great hope and great joy in your life. And you will be granted the ability to endure anything with a heart that can rejoice even in the midst of it. A conquering faith. Like Paul. Like what he did. And we're going to see. He knew it was coming. We're going to see that Thessalonica was a hotbed for nastiness. Even worse than Philippi. So bad that he had to write back to them pretty quickly after he leaves. We'll take a look a little bit at First and Second Thessalonians. We'll see how this little city. This big city, but little in the grand scheme of things, is an example of the eschatological predictions, promises made by Jesus Christ of what would happen to the Jews, how they would behave, and what would happen to those who believed and those who did not believe. And there's all this turmoil regarding eschatology within this city, within this church, because of it. And Paul has to write to them to instruct them and correct them. And we'll take a look at that along the way. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we rejoice, O God, today to rest in you, in your finished work, Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice again as we consider and recall your suffering upon the cross for our sins. We rejoice again as we consider your Invincible choice to bestow upon us forgiveness and righteousness in your name, Lord Jesus. And we rejoice in gladness once again in your resurrection from the dead that brings to us the certain victory that you have accomplished over all of your enemies, over our flesh, over death and hell itself. And that in your ascension, you have brought us into the place of glory in your presence in heaven on Mount Zion, where we now reside by grace with hearts lifted up and that you would grant to us as we walk in this life to be like Paul and Silas and Timothy and their team and Luke to rest in this calling, to rest in your power and to simply go along hand in hand with you, filled with your spirit, Christ before us, Christ above us, Christ beneath us, Christ behind us, Christ surrounding us, Christ within us, Christ through us, bless us and all of our offspring to walk in this way day by day until your glorious return, we pray, O God, in Jesus' name, amen.